you have to have something that you're working towards in order to know how to focus your efforts. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom, and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Coffee Potters, I could not be more excited to introduce you to this week's guest. He is an incredibly inspiring man by the name of Rob Jones. And when I saw a video of him online a few weeks ago, I went, oh my gosh, we've got to find a way to get him on Coffee Pods. His story is incredible and he has such an important message to share. So who's Rob? Rob was a combat engineer in the US Army uh, when an IED blew up under his feet in Afghanistan and took both of his legs. He became a double above-the-knee amputee, and he's gone on an incredible recovery journey that has seen him do everything from ride across America in the middle of winter to winning a bronze medal at the Paralympics, competing in the Invictus Games, which we recently hosted in Australia, and running 31 marathons in 31 days, all to challenge the perception of what both returned servicemen and women and of what uh, people with disabilities are capable of doing. He has quite an incredible personal philosophy. I think you'll find his mantra and outlook on life really uplifting and his approach to resiliency and how you, as he calls it, use the weight really inspiring and useful for things that you might be going through in your life. I'm not going to steal any more of his thunder. I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Here's Rob Jones. Rob Jones, I can't thank you enough for being here and joining me on Coffee Pods. I appreciate you making the time. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity and yeah, thanks a lot for having me uh, as a guest. So we're going to touch on Rob Jones' journey, which is this beautiful t-shirt that's staring at me across <laughs> our podcast as well. But I want to go back um, to where your, your military career started. Were you someone that grew up always wanting to serve in the army? Was that always the plan? No, um, I didn't. I didn't have the Marine Corps on my on my radar until my junior year of college. I mean, the recruiters had actually called me when I was in high school, and I was like, "No thanks." But you know, as you do in college, you kind of learn about yourself and you learn what your priorities are uh, as a young person. And mine sort of shifted from kind of looking out for my own self interest and into wanting to see how I could contribute to the self-interest of others. And so I had a friend that was uh, had just joined the Marine Corps the year before, kind of going through a similar, you know, life reflective moment as I was. So I started researching just what he was going to get into, and I read this book called Brotherhood of Heroes about the Battle of Pei Lu uh, in World War II, and... That book struck a chord with me, and I decided to join the Marine Corps. I went to the recruiter the next day. Wow. What was it that struck a chord? What was in the book? I just read in the stories about the the people that were in that battle. You know, they had—I was kind of searching for what I was missing in my life, and I saw that they had brotherhood, they had courage, they had altruism, they had, a, you know, a great purpose— and I saw the kind of people that those kind of qualities produced. And I wanted to be one of those people and that they just so happened to be Marines. 
So it was the the decision was clear. Yeah. Yeah. And so how quick is the journey from joining the Marines to finding yourself on deployment? It was about a year and a half. So I did what was called the 92-day reservist program. So I've joined after I joined during my junior year at Virginia Tech. And I knew I still wanted to finish college because I was so close. So what I did was join the reserves. And then the summer after my junior year, I went and did boot camp. And then I finished my last year of college and went to my reserve unit and did drills and everything. And then the next summer, so summer of 2007, I went to uh, what we call Marine Combat Training and then Combat Engineer School. And then after, it was during that time that my company had made it clear that they were going to be sending a volunteer platoon to Iraq in 2008. So I volunteered and then I got selected. And so our workup started in August or September of 2007. And then we were in Iraq, uh, January, 2008. Wow. And a combat engineer, for those who aren't necessarily familiar with that, that basically means you're the, you're the guys that deal with the explosives, right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different facets to combat engineering. You can do, uh, construction and base building. You can do, um, air wing stuff. So like runways and making sure all those are kind of up to, up to par. But yeah, the, the stuff that I was doing is called uh, division uh, side engineering, and that is breaching obstacles either with explosives or what we were doing mostly in Iraq and Afghanistan, finding safe routes through danger areas, uh, so areas that had a high likelihood of containing IEDs in them. So I would go forward and plot a safe route through that danger area, and then when I got to the other side, everybody else would follow that little trail of breadcrumbs that I left behind. And so you'd been on deployment a couple of times before life changed one day out yeah. on the battlefield, didn't it? Well, it was on my second deployment. Can you take us to what happened that day? Yeah. So like I said, I'm a combat engineer and I was, you know, my, my job was to find IEDs or at least plot a safe route through IED laden areas. And so on July 22nd of 2010, we were doing uh, what we call a push into Taliban territory in Sangin of Helmand province. Basically, what that involves is just driving into Taliban territory or walking into Taliban territory and then just seizing, you know, footholds, so seizing compounds. Mm-hmm. And if they shoot at you while you do it, you shoot back or you kill them or whatever. And then you just kind of have objectives. So we're going to get to this line here on this day, and then the next day we're going to go to this line. So we're just slowly taking over territory. And so I was attached to a squad of Marines that was providing security for the vehicle column. We step back off, the point man leads us away, he steps on an IED. And so, but luckily for all of us, um, his IED malfunctioned, did wow. what's called a low order detonation. And so what happened was just a blasting cap, this, like this little half a pen sized uh, cylinder of explosives, which is inserted into the main charge, usually a big jug of homemade explosives, like ammonium nitrate. That would be plugged into a big jug, the main the main charge. So what happened was that didn't set off the main charge like it's supposed to. So it's like a little firecracker went off. But that was a bit of a warning signal probably for you guys. There were going to be a few more floating around. Exactly. So I'm sure, as you know, the you know the terrorists, the Taliban, they don't just put one they put multiple because they know that when somebody gets wounded, we go and we get them out of there. So they knew that if somebody got wounded, somebody else would come in. It's likely that they would step on another IED because we kind of come in with, you know, throwing caution to the wind at that point. So now that became a danger area. So it became my responsibility to clear us through that area. And in the process of doing that, you know, my luck ran out on July 22nd, 2010, and the IED found me first. 
and that resulted in double above knee amputations. So what do you remember about that moment? Um, I remember just about everything. I mean, I was going from, I was, you know, using my metal detector to, to clear the route, swinging it back and forth and listening to the noises and all the indicators it was giving me. I don't remember really hearing anything that indicated to me that there was an IED anywhere. And then, you know, one second I'm standing up, you know, doing my job clearing for IEDs, and then the next second I'm, you know, on my back, and, you know, I've been hit by the IED. And I was probably unconscious for maybe 15, 20 seconds or so. So I don't remember flying through the air. Some people do remember flying through the air. I, I don't remember that. But I woke up, and, you know, it's kind of, the scene was what you would kind of expect. It's actually a lot like it is in the movie, you know, lots of screaming, lots of movement. Uh, the My... Uh, my fellow Marines, they came over and they put tourniquets on my legs. Um, and then the corpsman came over and gave me morphine. And then eventually they put me on a stretcher. Stretcher carried me to a tank that was waiting. And then the tank drove me to um, a landing zone to meet a helicopter. And then the helicopter took me to the hospital. And where is your head at when something like is, is it anywhere? I mean, how in your body or out of your body are you in those first initial moments? Uh, the very, very first moments for me was kind of a, a total disconnect of conscious and subconscious. So my conscious mind, had, I think, had kind of shut down. And I was kind of aware. I, had, I still had senses, but I wasn't telling my body to scream. It was just doing it on its own volition. It was kind of like basically going into shock, and that's just kind of what was happening. I wasn't saying, you know, inhale and go, ah, you know. But that's, so that's my body was just doing that on its own. And then after maybe 10 seconds of that, then my body's kind of, my brain kind of started to reboot. I guess maybe the endorphins kind of hit or whatever hormones uh, you get in that situation. And then I started to be able to think a little bit more clearly, but obviously kind of going into shock and, and all that stuff. And then once the morphine hit me, it was... And so you head off to a military base where you get hospital treatment and all of that to, to get yourself sorted out. Mm -hmm. At what point does your head start to entertain the thought of, oh, wow, this, this is quite a life-changing situation I found yeah. myself and what am I going to do now? I mean, I knew, I, I knew, I, so I knew exactly what had happened, you know, when my senses finally came back. Uh, you know, at site of injury, I knew that my legs were going to be severed either above the knee or below the knee somewhere. They were going to be severed off. So I knew at that point this was going to be life-changing. Uh, and I was kind of ignorant about, I didn't know what life was like as an amputee. Uh, so I kind of assumed, you know, at site of injury, maybe for a few days afterwards, you know, I was going to be in a wheelchair and, you know, not able to walk ever again or do the things I was, you know, able to do beforehand that I enjoyed doing, like going to the gym, working out, you know, playing racquetball, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And so I guess by the time I got, it took me about five days to get to Bethesda Naval Hospital in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. I guess I kind of realized it pretty quickly that this, my life was kind of changed, like the circumstances of my life were changed. But I also realized pretty quickly after getting to Bethesda that the mission for my life, the overall purpose of my life had remained unchanged. And how do you define that, that mission? So if you really make it, uh, break it down to the base level, I think, the most basic level, the mission for my life, and I think just about everybody's life, is to have an enjoyable life and have a meaningful life. And I was doing that in a certain way in the Marine Corps. I was deploying overseas and fighting 
you know, evil over there. And that's how I was enjoying myself and, and making it purposeful. So all I really needed to do was figure out a new way of doing that because that just because I'm an amputee now or I'm a double above the amputee and maybe it's not fair, maybe I didn't deserve it or there's somebody else to blame. Um, none of those really have an effect on the fact that my missions is still there. I've had the privilege of watching your TED talk and a couple of videos that show footage of you sort of in the recovery period and, and some of the interviews you've done subsequently. And one of the things that strikes me is your overwhelmingly positive disposition, seemingly throughout all of it. Was there anger and sadness and all of that? Like, have you reframed? Did you feel that in the initial stages or have you just tried to challenge yourself to see the silver linings and the positives from the very get-go? Not to a severe degree. I was never mad. I was never angry or bitter or anything like that. I was disappointed mostly <laughs> in myself because I was supposed to be able to find IEDs and I didn't. So the sadness that I felt, I acknowledged, you know, that it was uh, a, not a good thing. You know, I, I acknowledged how much it sucked to be a double above the amputee all of a sudden. And so, but my reaction to that would, wouldn't really be, you know, it wasn't, you know, an ongoing depression or sadness or anything. But from time to time, I would be, I would sit there and I would kind of acknowledge it to myself. And it would kind of be more like, let's say, uh, kind of like a guy is going up to a woman in a bar and he wants to talk to her, get her phone number or whatever. And he totally flubs the entire thing, right? And he walks off in shame. And then he kind of, he's, he's maybe 20 minutes later, he's like, bam, it's, it's like kind of like, dang, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe I did that. So it was kind of like that, maybe to a bigger degree, but it was kind of just, you know, thinking back on it, I was like, man, I can't believe I missed that IED. And man, this is, this is a bummer, you know, but like I said, you know, I still, I still wanted to enjoy my life. So I just kind of had to move past it and, you know, kind of skip all of the normal coping process that you go through and to just skip right to the acceptance stage. I want to touch on a whole bunch of parts of your recovery because I think there's a lot that people can learn in it. One of my favorite bits of the video I saw on your website was um, you and you look like you are like 30 seconds fresh out of having an operation, mm -hmm. you know, on your legs. And you go, first things first, I've got to get a workout program to get back on my feet. <laughs> like from the get go, you were focused on what do I need to do to find my way through this? How important was goal setting through this process? And what did you learn about goal setting in, in your recovery as well? So the video that I actually made was going to my buddy, Daniel, who had just been, who had, he was actually wounded an hour before me. Oh, wow. And I didn't know until I got to the hospital. He wasn't wounded as severely, but he was still down in intensive care when I made that video. So I was kind of trying to, I think one of the main things that kind of allowed me to move on pretty quickly was that I knew that there were people depending on me to, there are people whose state of mind were going to depend on my reaction to this situation. So my family, my friends, my mom, my friend Daniel that had been wounded and all my fellow Marines that were still back in Afghanistan, they were going to be looking at me and seeing how I responded. And then if I didn't respond well, then that means they're mindset's going to go bad as well. So that kind of allowed me to quickly move on. And then in terms of goal setting, I mean, it's, that's what you have to do in order to, uh, in, in order to get going. So I, you know, I had goals, immediate goals right away, like really short-term goals. And then I had long-term goals. I wanted to be able to get into my, get into a wheelchair. That was the, kind of my first thing. So that's like, that's the first thing I want to be able to do. And then I wanted to be able to get into the wheelchair without any help from the nurses and then be able to wheel myself around in the wheelchair. 
and then um, from there, you know, put prosthetic legs on and then be able to walk in those prosthetic legs and then use bionic knees in the prosthetic legs and then run and then do all these things. And then so I kind of had all these milestones that I was striving for uh, as I went along. And when you have something, you have to have something that you're working towards in order to know how to focus your efforts. So you can't really focus on anything if you don't have an objective. And so I was always trying to have an objective lined up that I was working towards and then actually have one after that. Uh, So when I got there, I wasn't in the situation where I was like, okay, what what do I do now? So I kind of tried to line them up. And so how early did you let yourself start to think about some of those big goals? Like I want to go to the Paralympics. I want to to run marathons. Because I can imagine there's sort of this tension between, you know, the day-to-day reality of the difficulty or the the recovery you've got, but also needing those big goals because that's what gets the motivational fire lit up inside. I became interested in the Paralympics probably within my first couple weeks after being wounded. Uh, I was in the hospital bed, so I had a lot of time to do research and be on the computer and think about stuff. Um, And so I was trying to figure out ways that I could still work out because I like to train. I like to go to the gym. Uh, It was a part of who I was. And so I was kind of looking and like, I forget what I Googled, but I Googled something and then uh, para rowing came up. And just so happened that, you know, it was a Paralympic sport. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I can actually use this opportunity. I was never going to be an Olympian or anything. I didn't have the genetics, but uh, the Paralympics, I might be able to break into that. And so I kind of put that on the back burner because my first big objective was, you know, learn how to walk again, get back to a as much a sense of normalcy as I could. And so I wanted, I focused on that first, but I kind of always had that Paralympic goal in, my, in the back of my head because it was 2010 I was wounded, the Paralympics were in 2012. So once I kind of got to a point where I was walking everywhere I went confidently, then I started kind of shifting gears to, well, maybe I should go learn how to row and explore that. And I wanted to touch on one of the things that you, you talk about a lot is that everyone faced with a tragedy has an has a choice to make mm-hmm. how did you play out that that choice for yourself or, or how do you invite people to think about struggle and challenge and adversity differently but what it kind of it's basically an analogy that i came up with in that if you imagine yourself in a gym with a barbell on your shoulders the barbell is kind of represents any kind of stress in our lives so it doesn't matter what the scale of the stress is it can be family stuff it can be job it can be a tragedy that's happened to you it doesn't matter any kind of challenge any kind of stress is on that barbell mm-hmm. as weight. And so, like you said, you only you have a couple different choices. You can resist that weight and hold out for as long as you can, but we all know you have finite energy and finite capabilities, so eventually that weight is going to... Come down on you. Yeah, it's going to come down. It's going to weigh you down. It's going to tie you out until eventually you're pinned and you can't move and you're basically useless. Or you can immediately, upon having that weight put on your shoulders, you can lift it over your head and strict press it and then just do it again and again and again. And then every time you every time you do that, you're adapting to that weight or adapting to the stress or the challenges or the tragedy or whatever it may be. You're using it to your advantage. And then eventually you get to a point where the weight that's on the bar is nothing. You can throw it off your shoulders or you can do whatever you want with it. You can handle it in perpetu- for perpetuity. Uh, and then because of that, you can now handle even more weight. So you can have somebody else put more plates on the bar or maybe somebody does it, you know, without you wanting them to. But because you use the weight beforehand, now you can handle the bigger weights, and then you lift those bigger weights. 
And then so it kind of, you keep advancing until eventually you get to a point where life, there's there's not enough weights in the gym. <laughs> you know, they run out of plates on that bar and you can, you're still lifting and there's not enough things in the world that can, that can bring you down or that can stop you. And so you have to figure out a way to use the tragedy or use whatever stress it is to your advantage. And so like what I was talking about before, how I was never going to be an Olympian. And now I had an opportunity to be a Paralympian. Was a, at sports, kind of living the life of an athlete was something I had always been interested in. And so when I became an amputee, I saw that opportunity and I seized it. So for people who are feeling perhaps a little bit overwhelmed or pinned by the weight that's on their bar at the moment, do you have any advice for how to, how to pump that first rep almost? Yeah. <laughs> well, the first, uh, the first step is acknowledging that you can yeah. or knowing that it is possible to do that first you know, press, strict press. It's not, you know, it's not easy. You kind of have to, I kind of had things fall into place for me pretty quickly. So you kind of have to just figure out, you really have to just have to think creatively about how you can approach this situation. So there's a vast, vast array of different things that can happen to people. So you kind of have to think creatively. And then, you know, sometimes you do need help. Sometimes the weight's a little bit too much at first. So you need somebody to come in and spot you. But you don't want them to just lift the whole weight themselves for you. Because then you, you haven't learned how to do it yourself, right? Yeah, well, and then, so when, let's say you're doing a bench press in the gym. So let's say you're doing a lift and you have a spotter and you're not quite being able to lift it. What do they do? They, they don't just rip it up. They do the finger, right? <laughs> they do the one finger and they say, it's all you, it's all you, it's all you. And that's what you, that's what you, that maybe sometimes that's what you need. So you might need somebody to point you in the right direction or give you that leg up, but it really is just trying to view your situation from a bird's eye view and maybe even a, imagine somebody else is in this situation and try and figure out what you, know, what you would advise somebody to do in that situation. I love that analogy for what it means to be a good helper in those moments. The idea yeah. that it's actually really important that we catch ourselves and go, I don't help this person by stepping in here and lifting the weight entirely. Yeah. I need to, to do, like, we've all had that spotter in the gym who's gone the yeah. one for, and you, and you do, you feel that sense of accomplishment and they played a critical role in it, but you yeah. own that for yourself, which is a totally different frame to when someone's yeah. done it for you, isn't it? And the fact of the matter is, you know, what is one finger really adding? Yeah. It's not that much, but it is something that you just barely need. And I was going to ask you how important were your support crew and who did you kind of draw inspiration and motivation from on the journey to recovery? I would, I'm, I'm not here without people helping me. Obviously, I'd be dead. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, from immediate, from the site of injury, I had people helping me out, putting tourniquets on, medical staff, saving my life on the way to the, to the hospital. And then when I get to the hospital, you know, I have the support network of my friends and family. And then I have doctors, prosthetists, physical therapists, and then eventually coaches all helping me. And then eventually, you know, I get to a point where I'm on my bike ride and my brother's helping me to accomplish that. And I have a team of people that are helping me accomplish that. And then when I get to the month of marathons, my wife is there helping me and my mom is there helping me. But kind of immediately, one of the things that helped me the most was they would actually, I was at Bethesda Naval Hospital for my first month. And then Walter Reed Army Hospital was maybe a 20 minute drive away. And that's where they kind of did all the physical therapy rehabilitation. But what would they would do is they would send the guys that were at Walter Reed back to Bethesda to talk to the new guys, talk to the guys that had just been wounded, weren't even wearing legs yet, didn't know what to expect. And they would say, this is what I can do. This is what it's like. 
And so they give you that little glimpse of hope in the very, very beginning. And then when I got to physical therapy, I could look around and I could see all these guys that had been there for a year plus. That were moving and that were doing everything. Yeah, Yeah. Doing everything I wanted to be able to do. And so when I saw that, I was seeing my future basically. And I was able to foresee myself being able to do that too because I saw there's one other another person exact same injury as me double above knee amputee he's doing it right in front of my eyes so seeing is believing since you've become a, a double amputee I mean one of the things I think about is sort of a, as an able-bodied person so to speak and the language here is tricky right I, I yeah. want to make sure I'm using the yeah, right terms so correct yeah. me if I'm not correct I, I feel like it's very easy to just take life for granted uh, and to to fail to appreciate the convenience and ease with which a lot of things happen. That I am sure when all of a sudden your life circumstances change become a whole different ballgame. And I know yeah. friends of mine who've suffered similar injuries and challenges over the course of um, their lives to date have said that to me. What do you wish that all of us were more conscious of or aware of? What, what can we do to become just more inclusive in the way that we work and operate? Hmm, that's a tough one. Uh, inclusive in terms of including people with disabilities or? Yeah. Have you experienced much exclusion? I've never been, I, mean, I have never been told I can't do anything. Even oh, if no. people thought it, I've never been told I can't do something. Um, not that it would change Stop anything you. for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, I guess uh, as an aside with that, you know, if somebody did come up to me and say, well, you can't run 31 marathons in 31 days, it wouldn't affect me one way or the other. Like a lot of people, they kind of feed off of that and they say, well, oh, well, you said I can't do it, so therefore I'm going to do it. And that's certainly one approach, but... Or therefore I can't do it. They or therefore I can't do it, yeah. yeah. So what I prefer to do is re- recognize that that person doesn't know me. They're just telling me something based on their own life experiences and probably it's more about them than it is about me. So I'm not going to be controlled either way by some person that doesn't even know. The only person that knows what I can do is me. So in terms of exclude, I've never been excluded. Um, and I'm a little bit le- uh, less on the sensitive side about, you know, terms and phrases. And so, you know, if somebody, I don't think anybody would be offended by saying disabled or able-bodied or, or whatever. But I think those are probably the correct accepted terms at this point. But in terms of inclusion, I mean, you just have to find out what the person is capable of doing, what they're comfortable with. Every, every single person is an individual. And just because you have a disability, that doesn't change any of that. You can't assume something about all disabled people in as much as you can about any group of people. And so the best thing you have to do is just learn about them, ask them questions, you know, ask them what they're comfortable with, ask them what they're capable of doing. And then, you know, how to approach them will be made clear. But I think the most important thing is just to treat them like anybody else. There's no reason to wear kid gloves with a person with disabilities because the chances are they don't want you to. And I know you're passionate about this topic, not just for people with disabilities, but also for veterans. Because yeah. in, in your view, a lot of people make assumptions about what return servicemen and women can and can't do. Mm-hmm. And you're really trying to challenge that status quo, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, there seems to be a pervasive feeling in in my country, and I'm, I don't know if it what it's like here, but I'm sure it's probably pretty similar. That we kind of look at we look at veterans as as heroes. Mm-hmm. And we, we appreciate them so much and we, we recognize their the sacrifices that they've made and how impressive they are. But at the same time, we all kind of assume that they come back from more broken individuals. And so what I'm trying to do is get it out there that there are some veterans that are struggling with you know post-traumatic stress disorder or just 
struggling to process what they've seen. But wounded does not mean broken. Yeah. So that, I mean, and so that's my mission. So I'm, and the way that I'm doing that is by creating a story about a veteran that saw trauma overseas in war and thrived off it instead of being destroyed by it. And experienced trauma himself. And again, yeah. And I want. I want veterans to see that so they can kind of use it like I kind of used the example of the people in physical therapy that that came before me. Hopefully, you know, a veteran will see what I'm doing and say, well, if he can do that, then I can do this. You know, whatever this is, whether it's, you know, running a marathon or starting a business or just getting out of bed, uh, it doesn't matter. And then I also want civilians to see it as well so they kind of know what the expectations should be of veterans. I love that. And I think there's a line that that said where it's sort of you can only be what you can see. And I just Mm -hmm. think about the power of what you're creating with that story and what people can now see in the way it helps them to dream for themselves. It's Mm -hmm. awesome. And you touched on the the marathon challenge. So you went to the Paralympics, got a bronze medal in London. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, And then was that an immediate pivot into, hey, I think I might be a marathon runner? How did that Uh, happen? (laughs) No, it happened over a long period of time. Okay. Uh, I did two seasons of rowing, so Paralympics in 2012 and then World Championships in 2013, where we placed uh, fourth. At that point, I decided that was kind of where I kind of learned that I was only really accomplishing one objective of my mission. That's enjoying myself. There wasn't really a whole lot of purpose behind rowing. At least I didn't feel like there was uh, in the grand scheme. So that's when I decided to do my bike ride uh, and start creating this story that I was telling you about by riding from uh, Maine to San Diego or during winter, and <laughs> the year of the polar vortex. I don't know if you guys heard about that. Delightful, yep. <laughs> How cold was it getting at points in this ride? The coldest I saw was minus 19 Fahrenheit. And this is like 180 days, right? It was 181, yeah. yeah. 181 days, 5,200 miles. And so that's kind of when I came up with the idea to create a story about a veteran you know, that saw trauma and all that stuff. And that was my first mission. And then after that, I kind of got reinterested in the Paralympics. So I attempted to go back to the Paralympics in 2016 and triathlon, but I wasn't able to qualify. I kind of, I was a little bit overconfident in how much of a disadvantage I could overcome. So in para triathlon, they have different categories, like in all para sports. And most double above knee amputees would compete in the hand cycle racing wheelchair category for the bike and the run. And I could ride a bike, like a regular bike, and I could run with running prostheses. So I decided I wanted to compete in a category that did that. But in that category, there are people that have one fully intact leg. And so I just kind of figured I could overcome that disadvantage by just outworking everybody. But and maybe I could have someday, but in two years, it just wasn't enough time. So I was never actually able to com- uh, compete against them or at least catch up to them on the bike. And they would just kind of blow me out. And then when the run, the run came around, I would smoke them on the run, but it just wasn't enough time uh, that I made up. And so as I was doing triathlons, I learned that I was pretty decent at running. I was able to do a 5K in 18 minutes, which is a perfect score. Yeah, perfect score on the Marine Corps PFT. And so I kind of determined that I had a little bit of a talent for running. And then once I, it became clear I wasn't going to make the Paralympics, I started thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do from here. And it had been a few years since, since my bike ride. So I, uh, you know, the, the trauma of that had kind of worn off (laughs) and I was ready to think about something else like that. So I figured, well, maybe I can add to this story and 
I came up with a month of marathons. 31 marathons in 31 days. Mm-hmm. Like, that is not doing things by halves, my friend. Like, that's going <laughs> all in. That's all the way. <laughs> why Why was that the, the choice? I mean, for most people running one marathon in their life, they're pretty stoked. But to do it back to back like that, why, why was that the challenge that you picked? So partly because of what you just said, where most people consider one marathon a bucket list item. And so... What I, if I was going to provide as much evidence I could to what I've been saying about veterans that we can be wounded and still accomplish incredible feats, uh, I needed to do something that was just going to make people's heads explode. Mm. And so I knew that most people considered one marathon like, amazing. And so I figured if I ran back to back to back to back marathons for you know, an X number of days in a row, then that would just, as a double above the amputee, that would just make people, it would, it would kind of blow people's minds and they would be like, oh my gosh. And it would provide insurmountable evidence to what I was saying. And so I knew that, I had heard of, you know, just from reading books about, you know, other sports, I had known about Iron Cowboy, I had known yeah. about uh, Dean Karnazes and all sorts of other people that had done similar stuff where they did, you know, 50 and 50. And so... I kind of just wanted to put my own little spin on that, and I picked 31 days, a full month, because I didn't think, I figured it was the kind of optimal number of days that people would kind of pay attention to the story. I thought 50 would be too long, because by the time I got going, people would kind of start to move on to other things, and they would say, well, oh, that guy's still doing the marathons, well, how is that going? You know, and then 20, I figured by the time I got started, or by the time I got going and got some momentum, I'd be done, so it wasn't quite long enough. So I figured a full month would be would be the best thing, and 31 days is the longest month. So in terms of your expectations, was it harder than you anticipated to do that? I actually did better than I anticipated. So I trained for 18 months specifically for that goal, and what I kind of in- what I expected was that my first marathon, which was in London, would be my best marathon. That's how I would feel the freshest for. And then every marathon after that, it would just be kind of uh, holding off deterioration of my my entire body. And then until on November 11th in D.C., I would, you know, kind of crawling across the finish line like like somebody coming out of the desert, you know, just begging for water. So that's kind of what I expected. But then what I learned was that that pattern kind of came true for the first four days. I started to get a little bit tired. But then after that fourth one my body started to adapt mm. until eventually my 10th one in Chicago was actually my fastest one. So I, I started getting faster and faster. And then that one was my fastest. And then after that, I kind of just maintained that, that pace throughout, throughout the rest of them. So my, you know, coming as a person who's done some big stuff, even I didn't expect my body to be able to adapt that well, but it did. Amazing. And you raised money the whole way through this too, didn't you, to donate to yeah. veterans organizations? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, we have 40,000 veteran organizations in, in America that are all veteran charities. And so I just had three that were important to me that I had, I had had uh, personal, you know, interactions with, and I knew the leadership and I believed in them and I knew that they used the money responsibly. And so while I was creating this story, it's kind of hard to have a physical manifestation of success with, mm-hmm. with that kind of a thing. You know, how do you, how do you really even quantify it? And so I figured raising money for charity and then having people come out and run with me uh, would be a good way to do that. And then it would also benefit, you know, it, it helps keep these veteran organizations 
alive and, and helps them help even more people than they might have been able to do before. So I figured I would add that in. And you strike me as someone who's um, you know, very interested in personal growth and the next challenge and all that sort of thing. What, what's kind of the, I guess, the, the mantra or the line or, you know, what is it for you that really fires you up? I'm thinking about, you know, your, your desk at home where you go to get motivated and inspired. <laughs> what, what quotes resonate or what people have you got photos of up there that kind of continue for you to kind of set the bar or get you fired up? Oh, man. Well, my rowing hero was a guy named Brad Lewis, who was a 1984 gold medalist. And I read his book, Assault on Lake Casitas, like right when I first started rowing. And a lot of people say that book is about obsession, but I kind of considered it to be about complete and total dedication as opposed to obsession. I think obsession kind of has a little bit of a negative connotation. Uh, so I would say him, definitely. And then really anybody that pushes themselves. So, um, but any kind of, any veteran that has come before me re- inspires me because it's my responsibility to live up to their legacy. But yeah, people like that. And then, yeah, just anybody that, pushes themselves for a goal that's greater than themselves for a selfless purpose. Must be a pretty inspiring week being here at Invictus Games then, surrounded by so many of those sorts of stories and people. Yeah, I mean, all these people that are competing in Invictus Games down here in Sydney, they're people that are pushing themselves regardless of their circumstances and and they're also trying to prove what veterans are capable of doing. So being around that many people, you know, I'm sure you know your environment is one of the most important things. Uh, to your success. So being in that environment just makes everybody in the competition, you know, reach that next height. And in terms of the advice that you've been given on the way, you mentioned the role of your support crew and people that have gotten around you and helped you. Is there a particular piece of advice that you've really clung to and used? Now, one of the questions we like to ask everyone on Coffee Pods is um, we're, we're passionate about turning ideas into action and helping people to, to, to make it real, make sure the rubber hits the road. Um, what call to action would you like people to take up after they've listened to this podcast? What would you like to encourage them to go do? What I like to encourage people to do is find something that is selfless to make their to drive them. So my own personal story, I had a selfless purpose for everything I, every single thing that I did. I had a purpose that was beyond myself. So uh, recovering immediately, I was looking I was, trying to affect the mood of my my family and my friends and my brothers. And then when I did the bike ride, doing it for veterans, monthly marathons, doing it for veterans, and I really think that having a selfless purpose that is of the utmost importance to you is really all you need to motivate yourself. You don't even need motivation at that point because you have that purpose behind you. So if we can all figure out what that selfless purpose is or find that thing that is the most important thing in the world to you, whether it's your kids or your spouse or whatever it may be, if you can find that, make that your motivation, just determine what that meaningful purpose is, that purpose that makes you get up in the morning. Figure out what that is. And if it's about somebody else, then... That even better, yeah. And if people want to connect, where can they find you? If you want to connect, they go to robjonesjourney.com. Uh, you can send me a message there. I usually respond to all of them. And then social media is at robjonesjourney. Uh, and that's how you can get in touch with me. And Well, Rob, I can't thank you enough for making the time to, to chat with us today. I think your journey is so inspiring, um, not only for what you've accomplished, but for me, this, this growth mindset and positive disposition mentality you've taken through everything you've faced. And I just love that idea you talked about of sort of, you know, the choice that we have in moments where we face adversity and challenge to go, do I see this as a barrier and, um, and a struggle? And do I choose to, f- to feel the weight pinning me? Yeah. Or do I choose to see this 
as a tool and an opportunity to propel myself and, and how do I push the bar up and keep doing it over and over again. Yeah. I have no doubt what you've shared is going to inspire people all over this country and all of our listeners around the world. And, and I thank you for your time. Well, I just appreciate the honor of being able to come talk to you. And uh, yeah, I just hope that everybody that listens to this gets something out of it. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback. Shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom. Leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.